Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Today we get to visit in-depth and in-person with someone we had on several months ago when we were considering the Standing Rock occupation. Kevin Basil served two tours of duty in Iraq and was profoundly changed by the experience. By the time of his discharge, his disillusionment was thorough, and after a period of adjustment, he knew there was an immense need for healing among the vets of both the Afghan and Afghanistan wars. He is among the vets who use the arts for healing. Kevin's work is with Warrior Writers, Combat Paper, New Jersey, and through his music, some of which he recorded in Iraq during his second tour. Kevin is here in person today at the annual week-long Quaker gathering I attend yearly called Friends General Conference. This year, we're on the campus of Niagara University in New York, and Kevin was willing to drive several hours to speak with me face-to-face. Kevin, it's great to have you back for Spirit in Action. Yeah, it's great to be here, Mark. What's been going on last six months, seven months since I've talked to you? Well, in the last six months, I've done two workshops in Washington, D.C., Walter Reed Hospital, two art-making workshops with Warrior Writers and Combat Paper New Jersey. I participated in a Veterans Action Camp, as it was called, at the Highlander Center in Tennessee, famous for its connection to the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks trained there. It was a really cool place to do a training. Other than that, I've been writing and playing music and trying to stay busy. It always surprises me when you talk about this, like combat paper. We'll spell out what that is for our listeners in a little bit. But this is working with vets and sometimes with people still in the military. You're dealing with them stuff that could be seen as critical of the war of the military, yet you get welcomed onto bases and to Walter Reed Hospital, other places like that. How much do you have to tiptoe? Is this a tense kind of entering in, or is it, come on in, we know we need your help? Well, we work through the USO, so we're not actually working for the Department of Defense. That said, we don't go in with the political agenda. So we provide tools for veterans or service members to use as they see fit. If they want to use those artistic tools for writing a personal history or speaking truth to power or healing, whatever they want, that's what we're there to do. So we keep it apolitical, but the politics come out in the room organically. 
Let's spell out what the two different programs that you actually work for now, and I say two, but I think there's probably three or four. <laughs> Some of the work is non-paid as well. So let's start talking about warrior writers, first of all. You have your BA in literature and your MFA in related fields, you know, your uh, fiction writer degree, all this kind of thing. So why is someone with those interests, degrees, that direction to your life, a mobile radar operator in the military? That doesn't seem like it's the same thing. Well, I was a writer before I went into the Army. So the whole time that I was in the Army, I, I was journaling. I wrote a couple short stories, but they weren't about the military. And then when I got out, that's when I started to work with warrior writers. I fell into working as a mobile radar operator just because that's what got offered to me on the day that I went to the military processing center in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So, you know, it wasn't like I desired to be working in air defense. It was just the throw of the dice. So, yeah, I, I went back to school and I got introduced to Warrior Writers, which is a creative writing program for veterans. We're based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, but we have workshops all across the country. We just recently participated in a writing conference in Boston, Massachusetts with the William Joyner Center. We were working with poets from the Vietnam War era, like Bruce Weigel and Fred Marchant, Kevin Bowen, a lot of really great poets and writers up there. And uh, yeah, we try to help other veterans and service members express themselves through writing. So spell out a little bit more. I mean, you could haul them into a room and say, here's some paper and pen or a computer so you can type. I mean, I suppose it's done different ways. What do you do that gets them in touch with the things that they actually need to write about? So we produce anthologies of writing that come out of our workshops. We choose the best writing, and then we work one-on-one -on -one with writers to polish up the work and then publish those pieces. And then we use those anthologies in future workshops as writing exercises. So we'll start a workshop off by reading a poem by a past participant. And then we'll have an exercise, like, for example, write about what it felt like to put a military uniform on for the first time. What were some of the sights, the smells, the sensations? You know, what did you feel? That's usually all it takes. People just run with it. We usually encourage participants to write for about 20 minutes in introduction workshops. And then they take an anthology home with them, and with luck, they continue to write. I assume that these groups are self-selecting. The people who show up are maybe interested in writing, or maybe they're brought there by some interest. Is it like someone from the VA refers them to you? How do they get in your workshops? It just depends on the setting. If we're working at Walter Reed Hospital, there are a lot of service members with not much to do as they're awaiting treatment or trying to transition out of the military because they've been injured. So those workshops are usually well attended because there are a lot of people with nothing to do there, and this is well promoted on the base. And uh, yeah, we usually get about 25 participants in those workshops. On a university, we've had workshops where nobody shows up because it's difficult to come out for the first time and write about experiences that may be traumatic or may be difficult to talk about. Those situations are more difficult when you show up and you try to go out in the campus and promote workshops with posters or talking to the Veterans Association on campus 
those are always situations that are not ideal, but we can deal with them. Could you give me an example, perhaps from your memory, of how a workshop has gone? What happens, what develops out of this? Is it mostly quiet time, or is it discussion? Is it, you know, like you, you read the poem, and then, okay, write for half an hour, and how does this work? So we start with introductions. We have participants go around in a circle and give a little of their military background, where they're from, some of their hobbies, and then we ask them to talk about your experience with the arts. Often, participants have no experience. So we are, for many, an introduction into the arts, writing specifically. After introductions, we begin by choosing a poem and sharing it with the group. We ask somebody to read it aloud. We might base the prompt off of current events or something that came up during introductions. We try to keep it loose and in the moment. Then we write for about 20 minutes. And after that, we share. We go around the room. You don't have to share, but we encourage participants to read work aloud. Uh, And then at that point, we provide a little feedback, always of the positive sort at this point in the process. This is a generative workshop, not a critique-based workshop like an MFA program. That comes later. Like I said, when we prepare anthologies, that's when we provide critiques. So you said, Kevin, that before you went in the military, you're already into literature. This is already your study. Had you actually published anything or worked with instructing other writers or nascent writers? No, I was a journalism major at Penn State, and I wasn't invested in the program. I didn't realize at that point that I I should have really been in a literature program and not a journalism program. I had this idea coming from a blue-collar family that you had to choose a, a practical major that would get you a job. And for some reason, I had this idea that journalism was the more practical form of writing as compared to literature, which I didn't know what you could do with that degree besides teach. And I didn't want to teach, which is ironic because that, that's what I do now. So there's some difference between the Kevin Basil pre-going into Iraq war and your period of service in the military on you know, 2003 to 2008, I think, your couple tours over in Iraq. How does Kevin Basil of 2002 look particularly different than the Kevin Basil sitting here at the French General Conference gathering here in Niagara University? Well, I played music at that point in my life, uh, and that was my primary focus, really, was the bar band that I was in. And when you're in a bar band, usually heavy drinking goes along with that. So that's what I was doing a lot of at that point. And I got in trouble, and to get out of trouble, I joined the Army. I can't sum up my Army experience in a couple sentences, but you know, it was very eye-opening. I came to a lot of realizations about politics and faith and what sort of person I wanted to be. While I was in Iraq, I made these realizations. And I knew that I didn't want to be someone who was proud of participating in an illegal war as I saw it. And uh, after I got out of the army, I joined Iraq Veterans Against the War, and then later Veterans for Peace. And I would say that in some way, everything that I do or most things that I do at this point are about uh, reconciliation, trying to do good after doing so much bad. You have so many opportunities working with warrior writers and with Combat Paper New Jersey. You have so many opportunities to talk to people who've been in the military or who maybe are in the military. 
Do you ever talk to people before they go in the military? I'm just kind of wondering what you would have said to Kevin Basil of 2002, what, what you would have put in his ear before going off to have this experience, which I think rent your life. I have friends who do counter-recruitment programs. They table at job fairs. Sometimes they set up right beside the military's table. And I think that's important to have those alternative messages out there because so often, especially in poor rural communities and inner cities, military recruiters have a pretty easy time recruiting because of economic factors and students, kids not having other options to get out. But that said, I don't think there's much that I could have been told in 2003 that would have changed my mind. That's why they go for teenagers, kids essentially, you know, because you don't have a well-rounded worldview at that point. You know, I was looking for, I would call it a rite of passage. You know, I didn't have that in my life. I was looking for adventure. I wanted all those things. So it's really difficult to say what can be done to effectively counter-recruit students, kids. Now, with sharing stories, I hope that more of these alternative, quote-unquote, viewpoints can help at least change the narrative a little bit. You said, Kevin, that you grew up in a working-class family. I did as well. Out of the 12 of us kids in the family, I'm the only one to go to university. So that, in some ways, I'm seen as very different in my family. Most of my family members, however, I would say lean liberal, lean progressive. There's a few who, out of the 12, who are on the other side from on most of those issues. Was your family working class and liberal or working class and poor, or was it just like working class and you get to make a difference by going and fighting? You know, the rite of passage that you talked about, is that the working class ideal? Well... I came from a military family. My grandfather was in the Korean War. My other grandfather was in World War II. I have a, an uncle who is a Vietnam War veteran, another uncle who was in the Navy. So the military was definitely part of the identity of our family. But it wasn't overpowering. It was the elephant in the room. It was the thing that came up occasionally, but it never really got fleshed out what that meant to the men in my family. My parents, they're more progressive than the rest of my family, I would say. And they let me choose my own path. They never put pressure on me to go one way or the other. They instilled good values in me. And, and of course, I lost sight of that for a while. But I like to think that I found my way back to the path that they wanted me to take. You said you got into this, Kevin, because you were in a bar band, right? You're doing a certain kind of music. A bar band is, as you said, a place where it goes with drinking. I assume that you recommend to every young man now that they do a lot of drinking so that they too can end up in the military. Your music changed, I think, when you went. You had to grow up. I mean, you were sitting in a war zone in Iraq. What kind of music started coming to you? Well, it's interesting because the music that I grew up with was classic rock radio. That was always what was playing when my dad was working in his wood shop. Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, The Beatles, they were a very important part of my musical upbringing. But I was also playing handbells in church, so that was part of it too. And I was also in the marching band, so I had all these different musical influences that I took with me into the military. When I was in Iraq in 2007-2008, 
I took some recording equipment along with me. I also had a couple instruments shipped to Iraq by my parents, and I set up a makeshift recording studio in a closet right beside my radar control room. While I was on duty, I would occasionally slip into the closet and record a couple takes of music, (laughs) and I wrote a handful of songs in Iraq. Uh, When I got home, those songs and, and the recorder went into another closet in Philadelphia where I lived, and I didn't think much about them. I had planned to finish the project and release it as maybe a demo to start another band after I got out of the army, but that didn't work out. So then I got involved with Combat Paper, Combat Paper New Jersey specifically. And when I went to the first papermaking workshop, my friend Eli asked me if I had an idea for a project. So Combat Paper is a project where we turn our military uniforms into handmade paper. So when Eli asked if I had a project that I could use my uniform for, the recordings immediately came to mind. So I went home and pulled them out of the closet and finished them. I mixed them and did some fresh overdubs to fix a few things up and released it. So Combat Paper, in a very real way, pulled it out of me. It pulled the music out of me, and that's what I share today. Why don't you give folks a sample of the music you made? Now, again, we're talking about your, I'd say, a ministry of peace. That's how I think of these things. We're talking about your work with Iraq Veterans Against the War, with Veterans for Peace, with Royer Writers, with Combat Paper New Jersey, and there's your music as some kind of ministry. Now, I don't know, when you do your Warrior Writers things, if you actually share songs as part of that, because that is writing that you've done. It all overlaps. We have Warrior Writers workshops at Iraq Veterans Against the War conferences. We have Combat Paper and Warrior Writers combined workshops. I perform music at Warrior Writers readings. So yeah, it's I, I don't see boundaries between these organizations that I work for and participate in. So this song is called Sleepwalking, and this was on the album that I recorded in Iraq in 2007-2008 called Puppet Show. You wanna wake up, but your senses are fogged. You're lost in time, you're lost in time Trust has been torn and now flutters away Your balance gone, your words are wrong Pulling you further and further from cure As the people say that the only way is to sleep Let's sleep it away Let's sleep Let's sleep it away This is a love song for you Wake up and tell the truth The dream's over to crumble away in the light That's why I lie Sleepwalk into the edge of the world We got time, lots of time But in the distance there's a burning ship going down Let it drown Memory slips and the story gets sold Truth decays, impressions remain Wandering, tired and broken, confused They don't have space for housing the youth Doctor, he said he would bury your head Or send you home the same day With the prescription fix so you can sleep Just sleep it away So you can sleep 
just sleep it away This is a love song for you Wake up and tell the truth The dream's over to crumble away in the light That's why I lie Sleepwalk into the edge of the world They got time, lots of time But in the distance there's a burning ship going down Let it drown Thank you, Kevin. That's Kevin Basil sharing his song, Sleepwalking. It's from the puppet show CD that he created really out of his experience living in Iraq during his two tours there. But that you said that was in the second tour. Was it, Kevin, the first tour that got you to change your mind to see war differently, to see your service there differently? Yeah, it was in 2005 that the foundation sort of dropped out for me. It really caused me to question the wars. And then when I got back in the end of 2005, beginning of 2006, uh, I was stationed at Fort Lewis in Washington State, and I found out that I was going to deploy again. And, you know, I was really conflicted about it. Now I see conscientious objectors as the real heroes, those who can stand up against incredible pressure and say no to war because the pressure is just absolutely overwhelming. You hear about people putting in packets to be conscientious objectors and going through the process, but the military tries to keep it quiet. So yeah, I went for a second tour, but I was stop-lost at that point, and then I, I got extended, so it ended up being a 15-month tour. I'm still very conflicted about that. And angry? I was angry about three years after I got back. I was very angry. For the first two years after I got back, I tried to turn the whole experience off. I didn't identify as a veteran. I didn't tell people. I told a select few people that I was a veteran, but most people I just left that five-year period of my life out of the story. But when I did actually start to identify as a veteran and to have strong opinions about war and about our nation's business in the Middle East, that's when I got very angry. And since then, the work that I've done with Iraq Veterans Against the War and Warrior Writers and Combat Paper have all been a way to channel that anger in a very healthy way. You mentioned you joined Iraq Veterans Against the War first, and then later on Veterans for Peace. What did that transition between those two groups? Why not just stay with Iraq Veterans Against the War? Why Veterans for Peace? Well, I'm still more active with Iraq Veterans Against the War You know, I pay dues with Veterans for Peace. I've been to marches with them, but I'm still more active with uh, IVAW. You know, I wanted to show support for Veterans for Peace. And if there are marches announced for Veterans for Peace, then I put them on my calendar and, and, and try to make it. With Veterans for Peace, a lot of the members are of the Vietnam War era, and they've been great mentors to my community, to my veterans community. They have definitely helped a lot of us 
see the big picture to see how empire and imperialism and the classic uh, Smedley Butler book, War is a Racket, they've uh, turned many of us onto that narrative. They've been hugely influential to a lot of us. So your thinking did evolve. I mean, first you go from denial or let's just put it away. I'm assuming it's something that doesn't stay hidden very well, that it tends to come out, because this acted upon your soul. And you did speak earlier of having a spiritual change coming in you. Can you put any more words to that? So in Iraq in 2005, I lost my faith. I was raised Presbyterian, and I was never really involved in the church beyond the community building aspects of it. You know, it was just what everybody in our community did on Sunday. You'd go to church and then there might be a picnic or games afterward. Nobody was really that devoted as far as I could see. I mean, it's never that simple. But when I lost my faith, I didn't have a support system. You know, you could go see the chaplain, but so often the chaplain is just there to refer you to health workers and to try to get you back into the fight, ironically. So, you know, I started to read books of philosophy, and I went so far as to double major in philosophy after I got out of the army. I was really into the existentialists for many years. And then philosophy, it really, really didn't fill the void. So at this point, I found a community that really helps, that being the veteran arts community. And that's where I am now. I'm still trying to to figure out where I stand in my spirituality. Would it be fair in at least some sense to say that the veteran arts community is your church, your church body, your congregation? Sure, yeah, I, I think that's fair to say. It's a healthy community, and it gives me a sense of purpose. Again, folks, we're speaking with Kevin Basil here today for Spirit in Action. This is Northern Spirit Radio production. Website, Northern Spirit radio.org with over 12 years of our programs free listening and download you've got links to our guests so when you want to get a hold of kevin there's a link to kevinbasil.com basil is b-a-s-l kevinbasil.com you can get a link to warrior writers you can get a link to combat paper and its various subsidiaries the uh, combat paper new jersey etc we'll have all of that on northernspiritradio.org there's a place to post comments Two-way communication is essential. It's not just us talking. It's your thinking, talking that needs to be shared. Post a comment when you visit, and that'll help us get that communication going. There's also a place to donate. This is full-time work, and we need your support for it to continue. So please click donate when you come. Even more important, we need so many sources of speaking, of information, of media. Community radio stations are essential part of that mix, and they're carrying these programs nationwide. We have something over 30 stations nationwide carrying our programs now. Please remember to support them. It makes such a difference for the community to find its voice. And, of course, that's something that Kevin Basil does. Warrior Writers certainly helps people coming back from war. They've got confused ideas. Sometimes they've got powerful feelings to get out. Sometimes they don't know what they think yet. And somehow putting a pen to paper helps people find themselves, which is just so crucial. 
And I want to come back now to Warrior Writers, Kevin, because I didn't actually ask you what the outcomes of these are. And Northern Spirit Radio, and specifically Spirit in Action, is all about healing of the world. Does healing actually happen? How do you know that this makes a difference? Or maybe it's just because you've got the major, so therefore create the work to make you have a job. Usually our workshops culminate with a public reading and exhibition, an art exhibition that usually features combat paper. So this is the opportunity for the workshop participants to witness, to actually share their stories with the public And it gives the public an opportunity to ask questions and to start a dialogue. Not many forums like this exist in the United States where you can sit down with someone who's been to war and actually have a conversation about topics that are often considered taboo in our society. So that said, whenever we open up these forums, and this is an opportunity for somebody like my grandfather who never talked about the Korean War, It was just always the elephant in the room that the family didn't talk about. He had an injury. His leg was injured. He limped. It was always the subject that our family never talked about. And if my grandfather would have had a forum like what we offer with warrior writers, he may have been able to talk about those things that were so traumatic. But he didn't have that. I did interview him before he passed away, though, and made combat paper out of one of his uniforms. And I set the combat paper piece that I made beside his casket at his funeral. And as people passed by, you know, I used that as an opportunity to share some of the things that he talked about in the interview that we did. So again, the question is, Kevin, you have this exhibition, if I guess you'd call it, where people are sharing their writings from warrior writers. How do you know it's doing any good? One of the little talked about things in our society, occasionally there'll be a new story about it, but... The rate of veteran suicide is horrendous. It's unconscionable, and for the most part, it gets ignored. Does that get changed by the kind of work? I mean, you can't really tell for sure, but do you have indications? Well, it's hard to say. You know, this is actually something that we try to track through surveys for what that's worth. Of course, whenever you write grants, you need to be able to prove that these things actually do make changes, but it's something that you feel in interactions with people that you have over years. You can see how a person starts to get better, starts to be more social, doesn't isolate, actually talks about the war or his or her military experience. These are changes that you start to see, but usually it takes a long time. You know, you can have a sort of catharsis that happens in a first workshop, but really you have to invest energy and time into doing this work to actually see the sort of benefits that uh, are lasting or greater. I would think that you'd have been drawn to this early on. Was it a kind of medication you took for yourself to do the writing? I mean, again, you said already, first three years, you kind of tried to deny it was going on. Did you finally need the medication of writing to get yourself more healthy? Can you see the differences in your mental, emotional health? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I never considered it healing work at the beginning. I was just writing. You know, writing was always hard work for me. But there was this other kind of writing that, honestly, I shunned before I started to do it. This was like 2012. But this is writing in a group, in a circle, where you're sharing on the spot. To me, writing was something that happened alone in a studio apartment So for me, at that point, that's what a writer was. That's what I was striving for, which was totally unhealthy. 
I see two different kinds of writing there. And I talked earlier about the difference between the generative workshop and the critique-based workshop. I wouldn't suggest somebody goes to a critique-based workshop necessarily to do the sort of healing work that you're talking about. Because there, people are going to say, well, this may have actually happened, but it doesn't fit in with the narrative of the story. Maybe you should change the ordering. Or, you know, when you start to tell somebody that who's sharing a traumatic story for the first time, that's not so healthy. It's been true for centuries and centuries that warriors come back from war. And unless they write some kind of great praise, you know, the Iliad or whatever, unless they write some kind of a saga of how wonderful heroes they are, they don't talk about their experience. One part of that, and, you know, you're a male, I'm a male, we know that men are trained not to talk about their weaknesses. It's like in Monty Python's The Holy Grail. You know, it's a flesh wound, it's a flesh wound. And that's what men are taught to say. How do you get past that programming of males when you're doing the warrior writers' workshops? Honestly, it just happens. It sometimes takes a couple days, which that's a certain kind of workshop that we facilitate, a week-long workshop. Yeah, it takes a couple days in those settings sometimes. But whenever we do like a monthly workshop, it sometimes takes a couple sessions before males will drop their guard. And women, too. Women do the same thing coming from military culture where they need to act tough to be accepted. We see that with uh, both men and women. But usually it just takes a couple writing prompts to get people to get comfortable and to share more openly. What is the mix, men and women? So it changes. Sometimes a workshop will be almost all women other times it's all men. But I, I would say across the board from what I've seen, it's been about a quarter women, three quarters men. And is that reflective of actual service rates, men and women? I think that we actually see more women in our workshops than are represented in the military at large. I would have guessed that simply because I think culture, even in spite of the fact that military culture says, you know, you buck up, grow up hair, don't need to blab, in spite of military culture saying that, and women as part of the military needing to follow that line, I imagine when they're out of that influence that there's still a voice in the back of their head says that it is good to talk about your feelings and your experiences, and it's good to share in a way that's just not native message for men in our culture. Yeah, it's interesting because even military culture itself is starting to change in that way. Commands are actually encouraging soldiers to go get help, mental health treatment. If they're starting to feel the effects of PTSD, then yeah, they are encouraged to get help. But it's still definitely prevalent in the military that you do suck it up. You know, you drive on. It's part of the culture. Again, folks, we're speaking with Kevin Basil. He has a website, kevinbasil.com. Basil is B-A-S-L. We're talking about his work with warrior writers, with combat paper, and his work with music. And I think we're not doing a fair job of sharing much of your music, Kevin. And you've got a guitar sitting in your lap. What are you doing now in terms of music? Currently, I'm recording an EP entitled Support the Resistance. It is a short history of the GI resistance movement from about World War I to present, told through music. 
So I would like to perform a song off of Support the Resistance. This is called The Bonus Blues. It was originally written and performed by Elsie Janis and her gang. Uh, it was written in 1922, and it refers to the bonus that was being requested by veterans of World War I after they returned home. They wanted to be compensated for their time abroad in the same way that uh, workers at home had been had been compensated for their efforts in the war. But the soldiers were not receiving adequate compensation, and that would eventually lead to the Bonus Army in 1932, where some 20,000 veterans and their families marched on Washington, D.C. and occupied the Capitol for a few months until they were routed out. By the military. By right? the military. <laughs> <laughs> so Kevin Basil sharing a song from his upcoming EP, Bonus Blues is the Song. Those bonus blues, and you know 
song by Elsie Janice and her gang, written in 1922, performed here today in 2017 by Kevin Basil for Spirit in Action. You should be so lucky as to have him come do a workshop with Warrior Writers, Combat Paper, and do music all in your town. It may be completely transformative for your locale. I think it, it does make a difference when you arrive on the spot. There was a line in there, something about your uniform has lost its charm. There's a line in there that says that. And you mentioned about this combat paper, you know, like even with your grandfather's uniform, making this homemade paper that you do for combat paper. What is the message of combat paper? Why are we doing this? I mean, you know, you could also do it with your Stetson hat or whatever. I mean, when you're doing this with the uniform, isn't that implicitly saying something? Sure. The military uniform is a charged piece of clothing, charged with meaning. People respond very differently when they see a piece of combat paper. Some people see it as a form of deep respect because you're taking these uniforms out of duffel bag in your basement or in your attic and you're turning it into something that is a piece of art. Of course, other people see it as a form of disrespect because you're destroying or transforming the uniform into paper, and paper is something that is ephemeral and and gets thrown away. When my dad died, which was at the age of 67, so that meant that some 40-some years before that, he had served in the Korean War. He was stationed in Japan. Go through his drawers, and we found his uniform from... 42 years before or whatever. I don't even know what happened to his uniform. I imagine one of my brothers might have it, uh, one of my brothers who served in the Air Force. So I know it was a powerful thing because he didn't save a lot of stuff. (laughs) It was a very small portion of things he did save. What is the reaction that you get from the people you have in the combat paper workshops is this in some way transformative for them? I, when you're transforming the uniform, I'm imagining that there's a piece of them that gets changed in that process. Sure, yeah. It's, I see it as, as a, an excellent metaphor for the transformation that happens. Psychologists call the uniform in this context a trace object. So it's an object that holds memories. You know, it, it's an object that, as I said, is charged with meaning. It's not surprising that your father kept his uniform for all those years. You know, it's it's something that maybe you return to maybe only once every decade. Maybe you take it out of the closet and, and you're flooded with memories. And a lot of those memories might not be good. Of course, a lot may be great memories of travel and making friends and It's just complicated, you know, it's definitely a a complex thing. But that said, the uniform, as a metaphor, you know, it it also does transform participants because it can often move them beyond memories that that are anchoring them in really bad places, often trauma. That's, I think, where the suicide epidemic originates from. You know, we talked about before moral injury, 
if you can actually rethink the traumatic situation or the morally questionable situation that you were in, if you can rethink that and see it as something that you can reconcile, I think that that's really helpful for a lot of participants and and combat paper works well because it is a metaphor for that transformation. You've talked about some work together, maybe doing both a combat paper and a warrior writer's workshop in the same area, group, convention, whatever. Do you also have the situation where someone creates combat paper out of their uniform and then uses that for warrior writers to record some of their stories of military? What happens with this paper? I have no idea. Yeah, we often do joint workshops. The ones that we do in Washington, D.C. at Fort Belvoir and at Walter Reed are joint workshops. So we begin on the first day and we cut into the uniform. And while we're doing that, we're also writing. The second day, we're actually starting to form sheets of paper with the fibers that have been macerated in a machine called a Hollander beater. While we're doing that, we're again writing. And then the third day, We're making art out of the paper. We're starting to incorporate found objects from military service, embedding them into the paper. My friend Nathan Lewis teaches participants how to bind the paper into books. My friend Eli Wright teaches printmaking techniques. So maybe they want to represent some aspect of their service through, you know, visual imagery. And then I, along with Lavella Kalika, the founder of Warrior Writers, will help participants edit their written work. And then sometimes that gets printed onto the combat paper or, you know, it's transferred into the books that are made in the workshops. I can really imagine not only how cathartic it is, but how constructive it is. You mentioned the anthologies, Kevin, that are of the writings that are created in this. Are there a number of them? Is there like one from each workshop, or is this done just each year you do it? And where does one get a hold of such things? Well, we have four anthologies that are available at our website, warriorwriters.org. But we also produce chapbooks of poetry in usually every workshop that we do in Washington, D.C. So, you know, like we take the the writing from the week, and we put them in a chat book that's then distributed at the, the public exhibition on Friday nights. And then whenever we go to make a, an anthology, we try to make an anthology every two years. We go back to the chat books and we'll look for the strongest work and then contact the writer and work with them to polish it further. And then that'll go in the book. We're actually working on a, a fifth anthology right now for our 10-year anniversary that will be available on our website. We're actually trying to crowdsource funding for that right now. So if you can help us out in that way, that would be great. Do you know what the crowdsource link is? You can find that on the website. It's on our main page at warriorwriters.org. And again, if you forget any of these other links, you can find them all in my interview with Kevin Basil on nordenspiritradio.org. Basil, again, B-A-S-L. KevinBasil.com is his website. I'd like to have one more song. You are getting ready to do the CP. You told me six months ago it was coming soon. Soon has come. How much sooner is it going to be coming now from this date, you know, in the summer of 2017? Yeah, it's going to be out this fall. Yeah, I'm working on the packaging right now and finishing up some of the recordings. But I'm doing all of the packaging by hand, as I did with my album Puppet Show. So it's hard to tell how long that's going to take. 
I have a feeling there's a meditative or a redemptive experience in doing the packaging yourself. Yeah, so I'm going to use a letterpress to print some of the text, and then I'm going to put stickers on the front, like the sort of bumper stickers that we see on our cars here in the United States that say, support the troops. This one will be support the resistance. His website, kevinbasil.org. How about one more song? Sounds good, yeah. Uh, music has been a major part of the veteran art movement. That's the greater context that warrior writers and combat paper fit into. There is a movement of artists who are also veterans across the United States making work to challenge militarism and just generally offering a, a creative response to so much destruction. And one of the musicians who has been hugely influential in the veteran art movement was Jacob George who unfortunately took his own life in 2014. And I'm going to perform a song called Soldier's Heart that was written by Jacob George. I think we'll use that to carry us out for today's Spirit in Action program. I did have Jacob George on our program, both for Spirit in Action Song of the Soul, back in 2013, so roughly a year before he killed himself. And I would say that the war killed him. Uh, he was suffering from moral injury from that war. He was from Arkansas. I hope you do tune in to NorthernSpiritRadio.org and listen to my interviews with Jacob. We lost a really good one when he went. And I really appreciate, Kevin, that you're carrying on his music since he's not here to sing it himself. There are some good recordings of his music out there. Soldier's Heart is one of the songs that he shared with me. I'm so thankful that you're sharing it here today as well, Kevin. Thanks for doing the work, both with Warrior Writers and with Combat Paper and with your music and that of Jacob. Thanks again for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. Again, the song is A Soldier's Heart, written by Jacob George, shared by Kevin Basil. Thanks to Catherine Thomas for production assistance on today's program. We'll see you next week for Spirit in Action, Soldier's Heart. I'm just a farmer from Arkansas There's a lot of things I don't understand Like why we send farmers to kill farmers In Afghanistan I did what I was told for my love of this land But I come home a shattered man with blood on my hands And now I can't have a relationship and I can't hold down a job Some may say I'm broken but I call it the soldier's heart Cause every time I go outside I have to look her in the eyes Knowing that she broke my heart And turned around in life What's it red, white and blue I trusted in you And you never even told me why In the summer of 2002 Came off the Pakistan border to get out of the heat. 
sergeant handed me some orders and he told me, told me to read. When it called for the mobilization of 500,000 soldiers, sailors and marines. Our impending invasion of Iraq in the coming spring. When I got home a couple months later and I heard the drums, heard the drums of war. They had y'all dancing around and asking, asking for more. This soldier's heart couldn't take it I said this soldier's heart couldn't take it Anymore And now I can't have a relationship And I can't hold down a job Some may say I'm broken But I call it the soldier's heart Cause every time I go outside I have to look her in the eyes Knowing that she broke my heart And turned around in life I said red, white, and blue I trusted in you And you never even told me why I said every time I go outside I have to look her in the eye Knowing that she broke my heart And turned around and lied I said red, white, and blue I trusted in you And you never even told me why The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice